Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, this morning we're going to turn in our Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to continue uh, in our study of 1 Corinthians. Um, we've been moving through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's one of our practices here is to kind of systematically, e- expositorily move through sections of Scripture so that we're studying them and reading them and encountering them as God gave them to us. And uh, we are at chapter 15, which means that we're close to the end of the book of Corinthians. And as we've been study in the book, you, you recognize, if you've been here uh, in the previous Sundays, that 1 Corinthians is written to a, s- a small church that Paul planted in Corinth. Um, this letter is probably written three to five years after Paul had been to Corinth and planted the church. As we've looked at the letter, we've seen that over and over, Paul is having to deal with certain misunderstandings, uh, certain problems that are arising in this small church, and that Paul is writing to them to give them instruction. And as we look at those issues in that church, we learn some of the key important truths about a church, what a church should be like, how a church should live together, how they should act together some of the things that we are to represent to the culture and the world around us. And uh, so it's out of Paul's interaction with that church that we learn so much. Well, as we come to chapter 15, it is a more surprising chapter because it's not the kind of problem that you would expect would naturally happen in a church. And it's probably not a problem that you and I, as Christians, would immediately have in our day. Because it seems like the problem that we find in chapter 15 is related to the first believers in the first century that just came to Jesus. What I mean is, is that we've looked at several things, and in the last section of Corinthians, we looked at chapter 12 through 14, which talked about spiritual gifts, and the spiritual gifts were kind of used against one another in the body, where they were trying to build up one person as more important than another person, and it was causing divisions in the church, and then, and Paul was making the point that there are various gifts, but unity. Part of the nature of that emphasis on spiritual gifts was this being spiritual. And as we come to chapter 15, Paul is going to be talking about the resurrection. And he doesn't introduce this chapter much like all the other chapters and topics where he has said, well, I know what you've been saying, I've heard you've been doing this, or anything like that. He just jumps into the topic of the resurrection. But in chapter, uh, chapter 50, verse 12, he kind of does tell us what the problem. But if it, is to, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
So there's this idea that the Corinthians were in some way teaching that there's no resurrection from the dead. Now, how could they do that? Well, part of it was that they come from, most of them were not Jewish. They were Gentile. They come from a pagan background. And uh, the Roman and Greek day, they believed that the physical body was evil and that what really is freedom is when you die and you become a spirit being and you're separated from your body. They didn't realize that the Scripture emphasizes the reality that we are created beings, that we are spiritual beings, but we're also bodies. And that inevitably at the second coming of Christ, we are going to be reunited with our bodies. One of the high points of God's plan of restoration is that we have glorified bodies. Now, the Corinthians didn't seem to understand that, and they kind of from their background didn't really have much uh, hope in that. They knew that Jesus rose from the dead, but they didn't really think about themselves being raised from the dead. Matter of fact, Paul was teaching them, of course, to be looking for the second coming. They were looking for the second coming right out of the gate, and very few of them had died. It wasn't until 1 Thessalonians when Paul was writing to the Thessalonian church trying to explain the idea that some who die, they will be raised first when Jesus comes again and they will join those who are alive because most of them thought they would be alive when Jesus returned. But so they were thinking about being spiritual beings and that they weren't really going to ever be raised bodily. They were just going to be transformed into spirit beings and go with Jesus when he returned. And so that's what we think is the reason that they began to doubt their own resurrection. The reality is that God values our bodies. He values who he has made us as creatures. And that we are spiritual beings, but we are also physical beings. And that Jesus represented in his resurrection body what a glorified body would be like, what an existence in heaven would be like. It would be a bodily existence. And so we're looking forward to that day of complete restoration. Not that we just die and are spirit beings, but that we die and we're reunited with glorified bodies. This is what the, the Corinthians missed. And it's because of that problem that Paul wants to address and give us instruction on an understanding of our bodies after the resurrection. And he'll give us that in the rest of chapter 15. But before he starts, as he begins this topic... He wants to ground the truth of our glorified bodies and what will happen when we're in Christ's kingdom with new bodies. He wants to ground that truth in the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus' resurrection is a prototype, so to speak, a picture of what our resurrection will be like. And so Paul begins right away to talk about the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, when we think about the resurrection, we must realize that we're talking about one of the most important things that can ever 
be experienced by us. One of the most important things that ever happened in the history of humanity. That Jesus came into this world, that he went to the cross, he died a real death, and he was raised to life in resurrection power. And the reason that that's important is because nothing matters in our life if God doesn't bring life to our dead bodies. Nothing matters if the resurrection isn't true. The resurrection is essential to the gospel. I do like what one famous author, Leo Tolstoy, said in his book of Confessions. He said, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of all questions, lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to it makes it impossible to live. The question is, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for any or do anything? It can also be expressed this way. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? This brings the reality and the weight of the resurrection into everyone's lives. For as Tolstoy understood, without a transcendent truth, life is absolutely meaningless. Without a reality beyond our earthly existence, there is no reason to live. Nothing will be sustained. Nothing will be eternal without God. The resurrection is of first importance in the gospel. The resurrection is the validation and the approval of God on earth that Christ is who he said he was, that Christ will bring life beyond the grave. Therefore, if Jesus is risen, believe in him, trust in him for salvation. Believe in him that he is God incarnate. Believe in him because it is real. That is what Paul builds his case on. I believe that this passage is so foundational that it should be a passage that we know instinctively when someone asks us, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe all that Jesus stuff? I think we should first and foremost say, because of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 11. This passage is so profound and so fundamental, it is the ground upon which we put our hope in the gospel. So as we turn to this passage, I want us to realize that when you look at verse 3 through 8, and really, it's probably more like uh, 3 through 7. No, it's 3 through 8, sorry. 3 through 8, that little paragraph is not Paul's writing. It is a confession, a creed that's been stated by believers early on in the church. Some New Testament professors say that this is within two to five years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I like James Dunn, who is one of the preeminent uh, England 
New Testament professors who says that this text can be traced back to within one year to six months of the crucifixion of Jesus. This was a text that crystallized the truth of the gospel, that Jesus did indeed come into this world. And there were a lot of prophets and a lot of teachers that came into this world. Jesus taught profound things. There were a lot of prophets and a lot of teachers who taught profound things. I would say not as profound as Jesus. There were a lot of people who were killed because of what they believed. But there's only one who came back to life, who conquered death, and said, everything that I taught you, everything that I've demonstrated to you, everything that I've told you about God is absolutely the truth, and my resurrection proves it. My resurrection is the validation of it. And that is why the resurrection in the early church, you look through all the sermons in the book of Acts, what did they do? They stood up and proclaimed Jesus as the one and only unique teacher and prophet of God. And what did he do? He died and he rose again. The resurrection validated the truth of the gospel. And that's why this little piece of Scripture floated around, was repeated and used in the early church, and Paul grabbed it and reminded the church of it. This passage should be fundamental in our understanding of why we are believers. Certainly, we've been converted. Certainly, we've had an experience. Like You probably can duplicate the same one I had. I knew that I was a sinner. I was running from God. I rejected everything that He wanted me to do. I felt convicted. The Holy Spirit came in. I saw with new eyes that Jesus was real. All that is true. But it's true because what Jesus did. And at the bottom, the base of everything that we believe as Christians is the historical fact that Jesus went to the cross, died in our place, and rose victorious over death. That is so fundamental. It is what builds us in our faith and our confidence in the gospel. So Paul points to that. So let's read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. I preach to you, which you received and on which you have uh, taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them all, but not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, 
this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. As we look at this passage, there are three things I want us to recognize. First, the resurrection is historical, and it's something to stand on. What Paul is doing is he's pointing to the basis of the gospel. The basis of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again. But it's important that we understand what he says at the very beginning of verse uh, 1. I want to remind you of the gospel and which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Realize that the gospel, the message that Jesus came into this world and went to the cross and died for us and rose again. That is not just some philosophical idea, some nice philosophy, some moral principle or some hope-so idea. What Paul is saying is that this is the gospel. This is the ground upon which we stand. And you must stand there. You must not let this fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead be a nice idea. It should shape who you are. Through the resurrection of Jesus, we should recognize He is Lord and He is Savior and He is Master. When we talk about Paul talks about the Corinthians should take their stand on this truth. He is talking to us in Compass Church. We should take our stand on the truth that Jesus conquered death, that Jesus rose from the dead. And because he did that, because that really did happen, we completely trust him. We'll completely follow him. We'll completely surrender him to him. Now, some of the, the words of Scripture says we must recognize that we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We have been made his. We are a new creation. We are brought into this relationship with him. The old has passed away. The new has come. Because of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for who he is, that means for us as believers, it means full surrender, full trust, full obedience. And every time we look at our lives, we look at what we do and how we live, we must be asking ourselves the question, am I a servant of Christ? Do I belong to him? Am I taking my stand on the truth that there is no other Savior, there is no other Lord but Jesus? It's that important. So the resurrection is a historical event, something to take your stand on. And in verse 3, Paul, that that paragraph, verse 3 through verse 8, is that piece of literature that probably was floating around that Paul picked up, and he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. And I'm going to break these down a little bit. That Christ died. Stop there. This throws out any of that malarkey or faulty idea that Jesus wasn't really human that he was just a figment of our imagination, maybe he was an emanating spirit or anything like that. Jesus came into this world to take on human flesh and walk through the door of death as a man. Christ died. And it says, for our sins. 
seems like every little step of this fundamental statement about Christianity is challenged all the time. So Christ died, a real person, a real man who took on humanity. He died for our sins. The question has been raised, did he really take on our sins? Wasn't he just an example of God's love? Wasn't there other ways to understand his death? No, what we see here in this early description of the death and resurrection of Christ is that Christ died for our sins. That means he took our place. He stood in our place. This is what we call a substitutionary death. We couldn't pay the penalty for our sin. If we were to pay the penalty for our sin, it would be separation for, from God for eternity. But Christ, as a holy, spotless Lamb of God, stepped into our place and died for our sins. And this refers, of course, to some of the uh, Old Testament scriptures because look at it, it says, for our sins according to the scriptures. So what's he referring to? Paul is certainly, uh, uh, amongst other places, certainly pointing and thinking of Isaiah chapter 53 and 52 and 53 and maybe particularly verse 4, that he was buried... Christ's uh, death was real, says, but he was pierced for our transgressions in verse 5 of Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, probably referring to that very verse. And then in verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. On the third day is just an inclusive explanation of what happened. He died on the third, on Friday, that's one day. He was in the tomb on Saturday, that's another day. He rose from the tomb on Sunday, the third day. But Maybe according to the scriptures doesn't particularly refer to the days because that's harder to find in the Old Testament, but to the rising. He did rise according to the scriptures. Think of Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. I kept my eyes always on the Lord and with him at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let my, your faithful one see de decay. You make known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Also, Psalm 110, 1 through 4 says the same thing, or Isaiah 53, 11 says, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So Jesus was raised according to the Scriptures. And then it goes on to tell us the appearances. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. I think there are three categories here. First, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. 
I see this as more of he appeared to his followers who believed and followed him up until his death, who anticipated that he was the Messiah. And for some who want to make explanation about the resurrection of Jesus, they say, well, those believers, they were wanting Jesus to be raised from the dead, and they wanted it so bad that they just imagined it. Well, you can maybe get away with that there, except that after that, it says he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once. One of the characteristics of such a large group is that everybody has affirmed, even uh, studies to this present day, that it's impossible to think that a large group of people had the similar hallucination, had the similar vision. And so the credibility of the resurrection and the appearance of Jesus after his death before a group of 500 is almost absolute. It's a characteristic of the truth, the historical fact of his resurrection. So there's a case kind of being built here, and they're telling the church and passing this along, establishing the real truth of the death of Jesus and the resurrection. So there are three steps, the Cephas and the Twelve, then appearing to the 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. I actually think that last category. So you had the, the followers of Jesus, Cephas and the Twelve, Peter and the Twelve, the large group, 500, and then the unbelievers. And if you put all of those together, explanations for the resurrection of Jesus are hard to come by because you can say that believers wanted him to rise from the dead and they might have made it up. 500, well, it is a little harder. I mean, you can't maintain a lie amongst 500. You can't uh, propose a hallucination on 500. That's a, that's a bigger building block, but one of the biggest building blocks is the unbelievers. And I think that that category fits here because you talk about first he appeared also to James. James was Jesus' brother who did not believe in Jesus. He did not follow Jesus. Jesus became a believer when he saw his brother raised from the dead and became a leader in the church. Now, it's a little more difficult this than to all the apostles because you have all the apostles here before, to the 12. I th actually think the apostles was a group of people, the 12 apostles, but there were oftentimes others there. And it could very well be that this then to all the apostles the first appearance to the 12 apostles was to the apostles when Thomas wasn't there. And you remember Thomas's response when the apostles came and told him that they had seen Jesus alive? Thomas said, no way, I won't believe that. that. There's no way that'll happen. The only way I'll believe that is if I can put my hand in his side and my fingers in the nail prints in his hands. Well, this last category of somewhat unbelievers, when he appeared to all the apostles, I think Thomas is there. And then last of all, he appeared to Paul. That last category are people who aren't prone to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead.
James didn't believe in Jesus. Thomas didn't believe in Jesus. Paul was persecuting the church and standing against the message of Jesus. And that makes it much more difficult to come up with some theory and some idea about how the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. When you have these people who stood against Jesus radically changed because they recognized the truth of the resurrection. So, the resurrection is historical. The resurrection is where we take our stand. The resurrection is also central. And this we'll, we'll camp on a little bit later in the rest of this chapter. But as Paul says at the end of verse 2, the gospel, by this gospel, by the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, you have been saved. If you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. The resurrection of Jesus, the truth of Jesus' life and death and conquering, oh, uh, conquering death is so essential that if you drop that, you will believe in vain. It is central. Other passages in 1 uh, Corinthians 15 say that if you don't, have the resurrection. If Jesus was not raised, we're still in our sins. Our faith is futile. The resurrection is central because it is the only way that we can be forgiven of the sins that we have committed. Jesus stood in our place to pay the penalty for our sins and through our faith and trust in him, our sins can be forgiven. It is also central because it is by His resurrection power, His life in us, by the Holy Spirit presently with us, that we can be empowered to live out the gospel. We can live as faithful servants of His. We have no hope on our own strength to do that. We have to have the life of Jesus flowing through us. And it's possible because we have a living, resurrected Lord. And finally, the resurrection is central because it points to our future. It points to a future kingdom when Christ will reign and rule. It points to a future of new life brought to us who have died, who are dead in our sins. New life that will be brought to us as we enter into Christ's kingdom. The resurrection is the linchpin of the gospel. Lastly, the resurrection is personal, and we see this in verses 9 through 11, where Paul recognizes that he has received the grace of God by the resurrection power of Jesus. Before we go into 9 through 11, just look at the end of verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Here, Paul is addressing the Corinthians' criticism of him. The Corinthians are questioning his authority, his wisdom, his ability to communicate God's word because he wasn't around when Jesus was here. He didn't become a believer until after Jesus was dead and raised from the dead. But, G but Paul recognizes and says that, yes, I persecuted the church, but Jesus appeared to me alive and well after his death. This word abnormally born actually is a word for miscarriage. 
whereas Paul wasn't really in on the process of the birth of the church. And the Corinthians seemed to be making fun of Paul and and questioning his authority. And Paul just kind of grabs it and, and makes a defense. And he makes a defense on how the resurrection of Jesus is personal to him. And that's what leads us into verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see how personal the resurrection is. You see how personal the truth that God has provided a way of salvation only through the work of His Son? And God has validated that method, that truth of salvation by resurrecting His Son. And that Paul recognizes that Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered life. He's the only one that gives life. And therefore, he'll surrender himself to all that Jesus is. He'll pour himself out for Jesus because he is the one and only Savior. As we think about this and we see what Paul did and we see that Paul gives credit to the grace of God that's at work in him, we must look at our lives. Say, Lord Jesus, may your life take over my life. May your purposes and your plans and your desires be my plans and my purposes and my desires. May I surrender all to you because by your death and your resurrection, you have showed, God has showed that you are the one and life only comes from you. Paul knew what it means to believe in the resurrection in a personal way. I hope that we know what it means to believe in the resurrection in a personal way. Why are we Christians? Why are we followers of Jesus? Because he really did conquer death and rise from the dead. And as a believer, ah, nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can keep me from conquering death as I'm attached to Jesus because He is the victor. That victory flows to us by His gracious gift to us. Verse 11, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. This is what you believe. Remember, this passage is the reason for our faith. I love going downstairs on Wednesdays in the year when we're having Awana because this is one of the verses that the Awana kids learn. And I know that as they're saying it and as they've memorized it and they're repeating it and they're getting their sticker, maybe at that moment they don't realize the power of that statement. I hope you realize the power of that statement. It should change everything in our lives. Why are we Christians? Because Jesus rose again. Because he rose, it changes everything. This is the hope of the gospel. It's what we stand on. It's what is central. And it is what's personal 
Christ's resurrection defines who we are, defines us as a church, defines us as a people, defines us individually. Never forget. Always be reminded the power of the gospel demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we believe in. It's real. It's reality. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, who pursues us. When we were rebellious and wicked and going our own way, you came after us. And you sent the Lord Jesus, your son, to live in this broken world to bring restoration, to bring healing, to bring new life. And the demonstration of the truth of Jesus is powerfully revealed in the resurrection of Jesus. As we believe in him, we will receive life as Jesus demonstrated life beyond the grave. We thank you. May that be the hope of everything we do. May we show forth the truth of Jesus and how we live and what we do and how we share together as a church and what we proclaim. In Jesus' name, amen.